Welcome to Focus Culture, a series from Evernote about how organized passion and creative thinking lead to great things. This is episode three, and I'm your host, Forrest Bryant. Science education matters more today than at any point in human history. On the one hand, we're surrounded by technology that shapes our lives as individuals and as a society. On the other, humans are having an ever larger impact on our environment, altering the landscape, changing ecological balances, and even affecting global climate. What does it all mean for us and for generations to come? Well, we depend on professional scientists to investigate these topics and offer answers. But those of us who aren't in science or academia have a responsibility as well. After all, the more you and I know about the world and how it works, the more deeply we appreciate nature. The better our understanding of the forces that shape our environment, the better prepared we are to take care of our world and face new challenges, not just socially or politically, but literally in our own backyards. Rebecca Johnson knows this better than most. She's the citizen science lead at the California Academy of Sciences. Rebecca's job is to get ordinary people excited about science. She does that by leading projects where regular folks like you and me help scientists make observations, gather data, and discover what's happening on a local level. And that helps all of us. We asked Rebecca to tell us what citizen science is all about, and I love her passion and focus on this issue. I think you will too. Oh, by the way, this podcast is just one part of the story. After you've listened to Rebecca, be sure to check out our Medium article and video about the California Academy of Sciences. You'll find those online at medium.com slash focus dash culture. But first, Rebecca Johnson. So Rebecca Johnson, thanks so much for taking a little time to join us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be chatting with you. Tell us a little bit about your role at the California Academy of Sciences. I co-direct our citizen science department here at the Academy. It's a department within our research division. And in our department, we work to get people who aren't paid to be scientists participating in science. And the main thing we do is work to encourage people to make and share the observations or pictures that they take of plants and animals, whether it's in their everyday life, like walking through the park or walking to their car or through events that we organize. So the Academy is kind of a unique place, right? It's a natural history museum, but it's more than that. Yeah, it's super unique place. It's amazing. And it's a public facing natural history museum, right? So when you come, you can see the you know, Africa Hall, you can see the giraffe dioramas and things. We have an amazing planetarium and an aquarium and then other exhibits. But then behind the scenes, not only do we have aquarists and folks that design those exhibits and then take care of the public floor, we also have a research division of about 100 folks, about 90 scientists, 100 scientists. And we all work in different ways to understand the diversity of life, how things are related to each other. So evolution, we do a lot of genomics research. We also maintain and take care of millions of scientific collections, which is, means specimens of plants and animals that have been collected all over the world here in California you know, over the last 200 years. And you are a working scientist yourself, I know. Your academic specialty is in the evolutionary history of nudibranchs, is that right? That's right, which means I figured out how a bunch of different beautiful species of sea slugs are related to each other. I started out working on nudibranchs because I'm really interested in the evolution of color, like how color pattern evolves, that these slugs, like marine slugs, 
are like the most beautiful slugs you'll ever see. They're all kinds of different colors, pink, purple, orange, and many of them um, share a common color pattern. They're like mimics, kind of like maybe the more familiar story that we hear about butterflies. And so I was really interested in how that happens. Now the work that I do, it's more figuring out where species are found together with a bunch of volunteers and looking at how species ranges are changing by basically sharing all of our observations to crowdsource species ranges. So this ties in, I guess, directly with the whole notion of citizen science. Mm -hmm. So what is citizen science exactly? This is real science. This is not just like uh, giving somebody a do-at-home science experiment that makes uh, something squirt out of a bottle. This is, yeah. this is actual scientific work. Yeah. The way I like to describe it is all kinds of people working together to further the scientific endeavor. So it might be people who consider, you know, their day job is being a scientist and are paid to do that work. It might be someone who's a retired scientist or retired science teacher. It might be someone who's a lawyer or works in tech, but has always loved birds or plants. And it might be someone who cares about the natural world and wants to know more and wants to make a difference and contribute to knowledge to be really considered citizen science, like those data that you're collecting or working to collect will be used for something. So someone will use those data to help inform management of a park or will make a policy change or will just, you know, publish a paper. So how big does this go? What, what kinds of questions can be answered through a citizen science project? Oh my gosh, it can be gigantic. So it can be very local and very, you know, relatively like small in scale. You know, there's, there's a great example that I like, and I think it was in England. I don't know exactly all the details, but people looked at the distribution of lichen, right? So lichen looks kind of like moss, but it grows on trees and on cement and wood. It's, a, it's when fungi and algae come together, and they make like a whole new thing that looks a little bit like a moss. But anyway, they looked at these lichen all throughout the city and collected them and use the lichen to look at air quality change through time because the lichen kind of like rings of trees, like they have store a record of the air quality as they were growing. And so they were able to look at what closing factories did. They're like able to use those data to lobby for some change um, because you could see the changes in air quality. This is like one little one town. Right? But at the same time, if you look at a, a platform like eBird, which is a place that people share observations of birds, it's all throughout the world. Um, but if you just look in the U.S., I mean, hundreds, thousands and thousands of people have contributed thousands and thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of records of where birds are seen when. And it's allowed the folks at eBird to make these amazing models of bird migration, how bird migrations are changing. It's allowed them to predict with global warming how necessary breeding habitat for birds will change and shrink. And that's just, that's just one example. There are also some other projects that look at planets and have folks classifying images from space that have helped us discover new exoplanets and new astronomical objects and classify bits of data that would have taken, you know, professional astronomers like a thousand years. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing that you can not only get these really valuable results and they can spark real change in communities or or even on a larger scale. But also that this is a great way to get people engaged with science in a way that possibly you know, 
probably they hadn't been before. And something that occurred to me uh, when I first heard about citizen science as a label, I thought, oh, well, cool. This is this brand new thing that we couldn't have done before. But then the more I read about it, the more I realized, well, wait a minute. This is kind of how a lot of science used to be done. Yeah. Once upon a time, especially natural history, yes. curious amateurs poking around in their backyards or out on the beach. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really um, the way science was from the beginning, right? It was people who weren't paid to do it, but who were curious and who took records and took notes about the things that they saw all around them. Like, for example, the California Academy of Sciences, we were founded in 1853 in San Francisco right after the gold rush by a group of people who were interested in the natural world and sharing what they had discovered when they moved to California, because they're mostly from the East Coast, right, about the natural world. And they wanted to share the treasures and the wonders of California with the world. And none of them were paid scientists. They were quite wealthy. They had time and they had treasure to meet together and decide like we're going to form an academy where we build a library and we talk about the natural world in California and share that with everybody that we can. And that's how our museum was founded. And that's how a lot of natural history throughout history has been done by people that were just interested and were observant and paid attention. Yeah. And now, of course, science is primarily the domain of these highly trained professional mm -hmm. specialists like yourself. And obviously, that's good. Right. But you know, you get better science, but there's also this negative aspect that people have lost touch with scientific knowledge and it's become this remote thing that other people do. And sometimes it's even viewed with a little bit of skepticism or it's often viewed with a lot of intimidation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that's one of the things I like most about my work is that, I mean, I have a PhD. I spent a long time studying one thing in school, right? But it doesn't mean I know everything by any stretch. <laughs> um, and everyone has expertise to share. And so by bringing groups of people together, like through the work we do, where we bring people, you know, to a park in San Francisco or a beach, and we say, hey, like, we're all in this together. We're going to look and try to document as many species as we can. We can all be curious. We can all notice if something's different than the other thing. We can all take a good picture because what we do is we um, have people use an app called iNaturalist where you just have to take a great picture. It's automatically geolocated and date and timestamp because it's on your phone. And everybody can share in that awe and wonder of discovery that I think is one of the most joyful things about living, but also just about being a scientist is that you get to see something new. Um, but everyone can have that. It's not just limited to someone who you know went to school for eight extra years. Hmm. And there are so many different ways that something like this can take hold, too. Uh, a lot of the th things I know that you're doing at the Cal Academy are very much hands-on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people actually getting out into the world and, and experiencing things. Uh, I realized that I've been doing a kind of citizen science for years and never thought of it in that way. You know, I've been donating spare computer cycles to initiatives like SETI at Home yeah. and uh, the World Community Grid that IBM runs. So th that's another way that people can do this. Uh, but I think there's something different about actually getting outside and doing the work yourself, isn't there? Yeah, I really like getting people outside for lots of reasons, right? I mean, it's really easy for those of us who live in cities to not pay attention to nature, which is all around us, even in cities. You can see beautiful and amazing plants and animals all around you. If it's on, you know, like your little balcony and your little street square out in front of your house or at the local park to not only empower people to collect data that are meaningful 
that help us, you know, understand biodiversity and how it's changing. In addition, it connects people to their place that they live in a different way, right? So they, for me, I can speak for myself, but I know this is true for a lot of the folks that volunteer with us or work with us. You you start to notice things that you didn't notice before. Like, oh, I saw that butterfly when I was on that bio blitz with the Academy. And now I just saw it like while I was watching my kid's baseball game. (laughs) Like, right. I mean, (laughs) you start to like notice things and you notice patterns, you notice trends just because you're just kind of paying attention a little more. And at the same time, by being out there and being out there together, you know, if everyone comes to a park to document a bunch of species one morning, you also meet people that have all come there for different reasons. Like maybe it's because they love their park or maybe it's because their friend asked them to come or maybe they are an amazing birder, right? So they, everyone comes for a different reason. And so we also build this community of people working together which is great and is really fun. Yeah, and it sounds like it, it's a way for people to become better citizens, better citizens of the world. Yeah. Um, you used a word that I have encountered a few times, and I would love uh, to know what exactly is a bio blitz? Hmm. So a bio blitz is just a bunch of people, any group of people really, coming together at one place at one time to work together to document as many species that they can find in one place. Um, Maybe the most well-known are the National Geographic and National Park Service partnered on a 10-year series of bioblitzes at national parks. And those lasted about 24 hours. And, you know, they had scientists that would lead walks. And then you would, like, learn about ants and also take pictures of ants. We started doing bioblitzes probably in about, I think it was about 2000 gosh, 13, um, together with a a meetup group called Nerds for Nature. They started this meetup and they, you know, were like, let's just come to the park. They went to McLaren Park here in San Francisco and let's use iNaturalist and divide the park up into areas and document as many species as we can in, in just about three hours. So they kind of started that movement and we've kind of taken over the mantle for that. So we get out there in the morning at like nine in the morning. We all send the word out, you know, we put it on social media. We have an event, right? No experience is necessary. Really. You just need yourself and your curiosity. And then we just go out for like three hours and hike on trails and take pictures. And then we come back together and we share what we found. And on a typical bio blitz like that, you know, let's say we have 40 ish people will make over a thousand observations of 250 species. And what else can that let you know? I mean, obviously it sounds like a lot of fun, but again, I'm going to keep hammering on this. This yeah. is real knowledge yeah, yeah. that has real real utility. Exactly. So when you've got a bunch of people out there documenting what species you have or how mm-hmm. many there are, or what part of the park they're in, what can you learn from that? There are many, many things you can learn, but a couple of good examples are, you know, the folks that are charged with managing the parks, let's say San Mateo County Parks in this case, they have a lot of land to manage and not a lot of eyes all the time on the ground. And so getting these data can help them find invasive species, but kind of like an early detection. We also can find um, new species, species that hadn't been documented before, things that are just kind of increase our knowledge of what is where, which is key for conservation and for planning. And so the people that are managing the parks have the best knowledge to make decisions. Hmm. And because we live in this connected uh, 
ecosystem, global ecosystem, where everything affects everything else to some extent, the more we know about what's happening locally, the more we can know about what's happening globally, right? Exactly. So the more we understand about what's happening in California, um, the more we can understand about what's happening everywhere, like you just said. Because these data are collected on iNaturalist, like they're not only just immediately available for people that are there. INAD is open, freely available data that anyone can search and download. And so scientists that are interested in questions like, how is the range of plant X changing or where is this plant found now? The first place they might look is a place called the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which is a clearinghouse of data from natural history museums and iNaturalist and eBird. So it's locally relevant, it's globally relevant, and especially at this time, you know, where things are changing really quickly, to know where things are found now is really important. And collectively, this knowledge helps us understand big patterns of biodiversity and how they're changing. And we can't actually get the kind of data at the scale we need without people everywhere making and sharing observations. And it is amazing how sometimes you can even, you mentioned sometimes even entirely new species or things that were unknown to science just pop up because nobody had actually looked in that spot at the right time. Does citizen science have a role to play in the solution to this problem? It definitely does. I mean, well, the one thing to remember about citizen science is not free (laughs) just Mm, because volunteers are doing it. So it can be more cost effective in some ways, right? But it still takes organization and people to run programs and to organize people and to share results and all those things. So um, it's important to remember that it can be cheaper and easier to fund in some ways, but it's not free. But one of the great things, like you said, is that not only is it a way to gather different kinds of data, but Ideally, when people participate in science, citizen science, like the biodiversity work that I've described, or any kind of citizen science, it helps them feel more connected to science in general and to recognize the role that science plays in our everyday lives, like in ways that we don't even think about. You know, like when we look at our weather app, like we don't think about all the things that had to happen to get that weather data to us. It's my hope that one of the things that we are also doing is building a community of advocates for science. And so when funding is short, when people want to cut, you know, the budget for the National Science Foundation or for NOAA, that there's a new kind of understanding or an increased understanding of the value of science to help everyone, not just specific scientists, right? Because I think there's this myth that like scientists are just like out there trying to make money for themselves. We see that in the climate change debate, like from the other side, which could, nothing could be further from the truth. So I like the idea that I can like help build a space that helps build a more science literate society and people seeing that their data and their observations are worthwhile for science, but that science is meaningful and important to protect. So your enthusiasm uh, for this is is obvious and infectious. Uh, how many projects is your team working on right now? You must be really busy. We're pretty busy. <laughs> we have a little team of four in our citizen science department. So me and my co-director, Allison Youngs, and then we have two staff members, Annie and Gio. And so we're working on, I would say, like three kind of big projects, and almost everything we do falls under those projects. So... The one that's coming up first, I'll go in order, 
is something called the City Nature Challenge. And that is a global nature documentation contest between city metro areas. We co-organized that with the Los Angeles County Natural History Museum. And so a few years ago, in I guess 2016, we started this contest between our two museums to say, hey, like over a week, who can make the most iNaturalist observations in your city? This year in 2019, so it's the weekend of um, it's four days starting April 26th. And I think as of right now, there are about 160 cities that are participating. So most cities, you know, many, many cities, I should say, especially in North America and Europe, many, many cities are participating. We do have cities participating in Africa and Asia and Australia, hopefully some folks from Antarctica down at the station. So we can have all seven continents. We definitely have a big South American contingent as well. Wow. Okay. So that's one thing your team is that's doing. One thing, just, one, <laughs> just one. And then our other big project is called a Snapshot Cal Coast. So that's just here in California. And this is also this also will be the fourth year of that program. And with that program, um, Allison and I are both marine biologists, and we do a lot of coastal work. And we have partnered over the past few years with the state of California to get a bunch of people out on the coast over about a week in the summer. So everywhere in California, so from Del Norte County to San Diego County, to get everybody out over a week making and sharing observations of coastal plants and animals to help us understand coastal species ranges and how they're changing. So we get this snapshot in time and we're like, this is where everything is right now in June of 2018. And then how has that changed um, in June of 2019? And anybody can do that like anywhere on the coast in California over this year, it's June 1st to June 16th. And really it is just make iNaturalist observations along the coast and they'll be part of our project and help us understand species ranges. And, and we have a new employee, Gio, who's a research scientist who's funded by the state of California to help us understand how these data can be used to inform marine protected area management. So it's super, super exciting. He's a modeler. And so he's modeling all these data wow. and helping us understand how we can best use them. That's awesome. So it's super awesome, right? Like one person's picture of like an anemone is going to be modeled to help us understand how we can protect coastal resources. It's pretty cool. And on top of all this, you also do your own academic research because, you know, you're still publishing you're still publishing scientific papers and things. And this is all very complex, data-heavy work. So whenever I'm talking to somebody who has to deal with this much stuff, I want to know, how do you personally stay organized and balanced on a day-to-day -day basis? So I am kind of a pen and paper no, um, to-do list person. Uh -huh. I find it very important for me to like write things down instead of I spend so much time typing. So when I have to-do lists and things to do, I to organize myself, I usually have like a task-specific to-do list. When it gets mm -hmm. really crazy, right? There's one that's like City Nature Challenge, one that's Snapshot Cal Coast, one that's, you know, we have a couple other projects. So writing things down keeping a really, really good calendar and sharing. Like I hardly ever use documents that aren't shared. But just getting it all down. That's the main thing. I right? think getting it all down. Right. Yeah. I mean, I used to be really good at, I could just remember everything, but that's actually not, I can't do it anymore. Getting a little too old for that. I think or too <laughs> many things. Right. So um, we've used Evernote here um, on the exhibits team because it's a massive team 
with different kind of requirements. And, you know, Evernote has a different kind of flexibility, as you guys all know, than from Google Docs. And um, I think for those kind of projects, it's been really, really great. We also use Slack for communication, team communication. So making sure you get everything down and that you're sharing all of your docs, yeah. uh, all of that keeps you connected to your work. I don't imagine you have much problem staying connected to nature, though a lot of us do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I personally, I know I get sort of into the rut mm-hmm. of just thinking, you know, there's my neighborhood and there's where I work and there's the freeway in between them. And I don't often get out of that little rut. Yeah. Uh, how do you recommend people can get back in touch with nature? Oh, my gosh. This is a great question. So I think just making a little bit of time wherever you live to be outside, right? So it doesn't mean you have to be like, you know, get all your REI gear on and go hiking. <laughs> it's really just, you know, take time to walk somewhere outside if you can. It doesn't even have to be to a park, but just outside. You know, if you need to take a bus to get a little further, if there isn't a lot of, if there aren't any trees really or street trees where you live, you know, some people live downtown where there's not a ton. Although on Market Street here in San Francisco, there are all these London plane trees along the sides, like just the trees that are on the sides of Market Street. And there's a butterfly, the Western Tiger Swallowtail, that uses those trees. Its behavior is such that it kind of thinks that Market Street is a river and those trees are the banks of a river. Hmm. So you can be walking down Market Street, like with everybody else, you know, going to BART or going to your office, and these butterflies are flying out above and using these plane trees for part of their habitat, which is amazing. So you don't have to go out of the city. I think it's really just saying, okay, I'm going to walk for like 10 or 15 minutes and I'm going to put my phone in my pocket until I see something I want to take a picture of, but I'm not going to be looking at my phone. Um, (laughs) And, and just kind of pay attention and see, you know, what you might see. And it might be walking into a park in a way you don't do like walking across the park instead of walking around the park. And, or it might just be like finding a bench somewhere and just sitting still for a little bit and waiting to see what moves around you, which can be kind of hard for us, right? Like sitting mm-hmm. still for five or 10 minutes. Or if you're walking along, this is something I like to do in the city by myself and also with my kids is if you're walking and you see a, a log like in the city park, right? You just turn it over. And underneath, you know, there are all these mushrooms and sometimes salamanders and pill bugs and snails and slugs. And it's all just underneath because there's a little water. And so just like kind of thinking, like, where might cool things live? Like, if I wanted to live in the city, in this park, where would I be? Yeah, just that whole notion of being observant and curious wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, You use the example of of the trees along Market Street in San Mm -hmm. Francisco. I've seen those so many times, it never even occurred to me to wonder what they were. Right. Now, I know they're London plane trees. But but just, you know, paying attention to that and and finding out those things. Yeah. There's a great book this guy Nathaniel Johnson wrote called Unseen City. And it's about that same thing. Like, he lived in the city with his daughter. I think they live in Berkeley now. But he you know, started paying attention because she was like walking really slow. <laughs> he was just, like three. And um, he started, she started asking questions about trees. And he's like, I don't know anything about what she's talking about. And so he takes a kind of deep dive into some local species that are pretty easy to see um, in cities. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of territory here. If someone wants to get more involved in their world, get more involved in citizen science, what's step one? So step one is 
paying attention, like we said, just in general. Um, and then I think, you know, if you wanted to find out about our events at the Academy on our website, if you just Google um, Cal Academy Citizen Science, you'll find our site. There will be a bunch of events in that, that City Nature Challenge week in April. So you can look out for those. And really, like wherever you are, you can just put in your Google, like Citizen Science near me. <laughs> and there mm. are some clearinghouses and places to find. There's one called Size Starter. But sometimes just looking around um, is a nice way just by looking online and finding what's around you. All right. So wherever you are, go look around, find out what citizen science is happening, get outside and participate. It's good for you. It's good for your community. It's good for science. It's good for the world. Yeah. And anybody can download iNaturalist. So the first thing I would say, you know, look at our website, but also, you know, download iNaturalist, make yourself a, a login. Take a minute to, to start like what we were saying. Walk outside in your backyard or on the street and try to take 10 pictures of 10 different things. The, the app, not only does the community help you identify things, there's amazing um, AI that will suggest what you've seen to you. Um, and those suggestions are built all on observations made by the community and identifications made by the community. So it can help you know what that crazy spider is in your bathroom or whatever you see, like that plant that you've always wondered about on Market Street or in front of your house. So try it on iNaturalist. That is literally just the letter I and the word naturalist, literally, right? Literally, yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Rebecca Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been really inspiring. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great to talk. I hope to see you out on a BioBlitz sometime. I think you will. Awesome. Rebecca Johnson is the Citizen Science Lead at the California Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Academy, their mission, and how they use Evernote, be sure to check out our Medium article and video at medium.com slash focus dash culture. That's medium.com slash focus dash culture. If you'd like to dip your feet into the world of citizen science, visit the Academy online at calacademy.org. Look for a program near you at citynaturechallenge.org or download the iNaturalist app to your smartphone. You've been listening to Focus Culture, produced by Evernote, the place to find your focus at work, at home, and everywhere in between. Get started for free at evernote.com. Download the Evernote app on your iOS or Android device, or look for us in the Windows Store or the Apple App Store. For more tips and stories from the Evernote team, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Medium. I'm Forrest Bryant. Our producer is Stacy Bailey, and our audio engineer is Jay Shilliday. Thanks to Rebecca Johnson for joining me in this episode, and thank you for listening. Until next time, stay focused.